0: A bitter rivalry, a damp little island, French cinema, a velvet dream. Yes, my friends, we're playing some wooden overcoats, this time on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, podcast pals, it's me, your hashtag humble host, David Reinstrom, hashtag blessed. Today, I have the privilege of reproducing for you one of the best listening experiences I had last year. Wooden Overcoats, an independent podcast sitcom from the United Kingdom about two rival funeral directors on a drizzly little island in the English Channel. We'll be talking to David K. Barnes, the head writer, and Andy Goddard, one of the co-directors and producers, later in the show. But before I get started, I just wanted to say one of the things I appreciate so much about Wooden Overcoats is just how snappy it is. Everything in it is just so quick and agile and motivated, and like all of my favorite sitcoms, many of the gags come from character and continue to build over the course of the series. But I don't want to spoil anything for you, so I won't say much more than that, except enjoy. Here's the first episode of Wooden Overcoat's The Bane of Rudyard.
1: Now, hidden in the English Channel is an island called Piffling. On the island is a village, Piffling Vale, and the village has a square, and the square has this lovely little antique shop. But opposite the antique shop is a funeral home, which is where much of this little chronicle will be set, I'm afraid. You see, I want to tell you all about a man named Rudyard Fun. He owns the funeral parlour. He's responsible for all the funerals in Piffling Vale... And today, he experienced what was undoubtedly the worst day of his life, which, to be honest, was probably long overdue. Wooden
2: Overcoats by David K. Barnes Episode 1 The Bane of Rudyard
3: We gather here today... To celebrate the life of Stanley Jessup Carmichael, who was taken from us only five days ago.
1: It all began with a funeral. The antique dealer, Stanley Carmichael, whose shop was immediately opposite Rudyard's premises, had led a life of peace and ordered calm for some 89 years, and been subsequently crushed to death by a granite sundial.
3: I confess that I never actually bought anything from him. His price has been quite steep, actually, though I did have my eye on that sundial. I might still be tempted if it came down in price. Hint, hint. (laughs) Stanley's
1: relatives pricked up their ears at the prospect of getting something for that granite sundial, whilst nearby, his eyes sunken, and his skin pale and drawn, stood Rudyard, looking at his watch, and wishing strongly that the Reverend wasn't an agnostic. He's
3: undoubtedly looking down at us from his place with God. Unless you don't believe in that sort of thing, which I won't hold against you. Mind you, God probably will. Unless he doesn't exist. In which case, he won't have anything to complain about, really. (coughs) Reverend! Uh, Sorry, did somebody say... Reverend! Oh, hello, Ratchard. You're rambling. Sorry? You're rambling again. Oh! God, am I? Yes. I, oh, I'm so sorry. Where was I? His spirit looking down on us from I, his I, place. I, oh, God. from his place with God. Yes, yes. Thank you. Right, right. I'm. Uh, uh, looking down at us from his place with um. Uh, no, no. Uh, actually, but I I didn't suppose we could have a quick show of hands, could we? No, no. Come on. If you believe in God, could you put your hands up? Can 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 we all do that? Put your hand up if you believe in the, uh Right, right. Uh, about half. Uh, so. Uh, yeah. What I might do is do the service twice. Well, we don't have time. Once with God in it and the other without. No, we're overrunning. Oh, I I, I thought I might read out a few psalms. Which ones? I don't mind. I'd be happy to take requests if anyone's got any favourites. No no, 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 no. We're 16 minutes behind schedule. No, it is 17.
2: Georgie, wake up.
1: Mm, I don't want to.
4: We need the coffin in the ground. Now.
2: So it's a very heavy coffee. What's your point?
1: I'm the
3: only pallbearer. Oh, stop
4: moaning. Put your back into it.
3: Oh, fine. Do we have time for some funny anecdotes?
4: Late as it is, and it's pissing
3: it down, so no. Um, ruining everything. There you are, Reverend, losing them. Oh, I thought they were rather getting into it. Not him, you. Me? You horrid little man. Stop hurrying things along.
4: Don't you know what a schedule is? This isn't my only gig today, you know. got Mr Askey to measure up in half an hour. He's not dead. Well, he doesn't look healthy, though, does he? Stop
2: talking. We're trying to honour
4: Stanley. Honour Stanley? You didn't even like him. How
2: dare
1: you?
4: I noticed at the shop you slipped that carriage clock down your blouse when you thought no one was looking. (gasps) And the dressing table.
1: (gasps) I knew it. Oh, shut up. Bill swipe the portrait of Ava Braun. Bill,
3: I wanted that
4: portrait. Oh, well, you can't have it. <gasps>
1: oh!
3: Um, I'm sorry, Jerry, i just lost control. Ow! Oh no, come, 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 everyone! Stay calm! Jerry, put that shovel down! No!
4: Alright, Georgie, get the body in the ground.
1: Sir. They don't look very
4: happy. Of course they don't look happy. It's a female.
1: Off you go. <sighs> their service completed, Rudyard Fun and Georgie Crusoe fled the cemetery and hurried back to the funeral home. Established by local character and serial bigamist Gilbert Fun in the 15th century, Fun Funerals has always maintained a solid reputation for being the only funeral home on the island.
4: Of course, it could be onto a good thing back there. You saw Stanley's widow.
2: That sad old lady.
4: Yes. When she took a swing at her son-in-law, I think she fell into the grave instead. I don't know if it was fatal, but it looked promising to me.
2: Do you think we'll ever have a quiet funeral?
4: Oh, asking for the impossible never helped anyone.
2: People smiling, swapping funny memories. I'm just not sure that every funeral should end in violent conflict. Georgie,
4: once you've been here a few more months, you'll realise that funerals will always end in bloodshed. There's very little that you or I can do about it. Now, go and get the measuring kit. I want to go to Mr Askey's and see if he's dead yet.
2: Are you sure it's worth the bother?
4: Oh, we've gone round every day for the last six weeks. I'm not giving up now. Hop to it!
2: Yes, sir.
4: Well, get me a dry jacket and another hat! Where's Antigone! Antigone! Now, look here. Yes? Stanley's widow. Ha! I knew it. No, nothing. Sorry. Uh, We can fit her in at six o'clock. I'd leave her in the ground for the moment. It'll save time in the long run. No, she shouldn't have been brawling at her age. Of course I'd have fancied my chances against her. I'm thirty-five and she was eighty-two. See you at six. Georgie! Got a full day ahead of us. Where's Antigone?
2: Try the mortuary.
4: You in the march, Antigone? Antigone? You in the march, Antigone? Antigone? Are you in the... What? I'm back.
2: I'd rather look at the corpses. Oh, the... Just rest in peace mean nothing to you. Well,
4: I don't hear the guest's complaining. You got room for another?
2: Is it Mr Askey? Not yet. This one's a bonus.
1: That's Antigone, Rudyard's twin sister. Despite being actually born one week afterwards, the poor dear had been diagnosed with depression within 20 minutes of being born, a world record... Which gave her no consolation at all. So
2: how was it today?
4: Uh, Vic is getting worse, and of course it was raining, and inevitably it ended with a punch-up over a portrait of Eva Braun. But personally, I found it all very moving.
2: Brilliant. So that's another grieving widow we we'll have to apologise to. No, we won't. Why not?
4: She fell into the grave and died before I left. She did what? been a very productive morning.
2: You really have no concept of what good service is, do uh, you? i
4: love to disagree with you, and oh, I'm doing it now.
2: I've been in the mortuary all morning, and do you know what I've been up to? I'm
4: sure I don't want to know.
2: I have spent the past five hours mixing formaldehyde and methanol with clementines, and a tiny, a tiny dash of cinnamon. That's what I've been doing for five hours. Should I
4: ask why? To
2: try and make our embalming fluid smell nicer, so the bodies will smell nicer, because have you ever really smelt a body, Rudyard? Why do we still talk to each other? Now, thanks to me, they'll smell brighter, fresher, not like bodies at all. That's the sort of service I'm striving for, Rudyard. I want them to forget that the body is a body. Yes,
4: that'll work. Our granddad's dead, but don't worry, because it smells like Christmas.
2: It's attention to detail, Rudyard. It's how to run a business. You wouldn't know. We
4: get the body in the coffin in the ground on time.
2: Sir. You were the jackets beneath him by Moths. I saw the whole thing.
4: Not now. Georgie, how long did it take to get the coffin in the ground this morning?
2: Couple of seconds. Now that's a good service. Because I dropped
4: it. But it got where it needed to be, and that's what they pay us for.
2: Roger, for the very last time. They don't want chaos. They don't want stress, and they don't want a relative dead before the first has even been buried. Well, how do you know what they want? In the name of sanity, Roger. Look, I've got a
4: very busy day ahead, so we you just get back
5: into the mortuary and. Hello. Yes? Eric. Eric Chapman. I'm new to the place. Just arrived. Good morning. Georgie, leave it to the professionals. Good morning. We've not met. No, because I'm new to the place. You don't need to brag about it. I've met people before. You're Mr Rudyard Fun of Fun Funerals? Correct. Terrific name. I suppose you've put the fun in funerals. (laughs) No, of course we don't. What's obscene? Sure. Never mind. Well, Hello, Mr. Chapman. Oh, Jesus! Is this too close? A little bit. Sorry. Don't, don't mention it. <laughs> Sorry,
2: I'm Antigone. Sorry, pleased to meet you. Ah,
5: oh, likewise. Uh, call me Eric. Are you in charge?
2: I'm the mortician where the action is. <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, I bet there's not much you don't know about the body of Antigone.
2: That sounded like a double meaning.
5: It's called flirting.
2: Oh, gosh, is it? Well, no. No, it was loudly smashing. Do you know it again. Haven't made it awkward. Damn!
5: <laughs> Haven't got all day. Yes, so, uh, Rudyard, Antigone and...
2: Georgie, hi. That's enough.
5: Well, I saw you at the funeral, didn't I? Yeah, Helping you out. A, Georgia, don't give away company secrets.
2: I was only... Hang on. Were you at the
5: funeral this morning?
4: Yes, I was. And I'm sure you were impressed with what you saw, Mr Chapman, but we really are frightfully... Actually,
5: I wasn't entirely sure it came off. I'm sorry. For a start, it got a little bit violent, didn't it? Did you think so? At the end,
4: yes. I'm not sure what funeral you were watching, Mr Chapman, but all I saw was good, clean morning. Didn't someone die? A very convenient place for it to happen, Georgie.
5: I'm not. There thinking. you go. Don't let us keep you, Mr. Chapman. And I thought there could have been a greater attention to detail. Stop me if I'm getting too critical. Okay, I'll stop you there.
2: Shut up. Carry on, Mr.
5: Chapman. Eric. Gosh. I have to say, it all looks a little bit grim. I mean, it's a funeral-time party time. But even so, I always think these occasions should be a, a celebration of life rather than going on about death. Do you know what I mean? Nope. Ah, I mean, I don't want to be made even more miserable. I want to remember those happy, magnificent memories. I want a cheerful atmosphere. Bright flowers, music, funny recollections.
2: Sweeter-smelling fluids.
5: Exactly. Fluids. I think
2: they're very important.
5: Sure thing. That's what I mean. Sorting out those little details. Pushing the boat out. Or the hearse out. <laughs> it's, well, it's just my two cents for what it's worth. Well, uh, I don't know what planet you live on, Mr Chapman, but
2: Thank he'll... you. We'll bear those things in mind, won't we, Rudyard?
5: Over my desk. Smashing! Anyway, I thought I'd swing by...
2: Oh, any time. Thank you. Anytime at all.
5: Yes. I was just swinging by to see the competition. Competition? Yes.
2: You mean like a raffle? Well,
5: not exactly. I hate raffles. It's a strange thing to hate. Anyway, I meant you lot. Uh, fun Funerals, the local competition. In funerals. You're an undertaker. Well, a client prefer funeral director.
2: You're just visiting, though.
5: Oh, no, I live here now. I'm setting myself up.
2: Your own funeral home?
5: Yeah, Chapman's. Not quite as catchy as Fun Funerals, but there we are. <laughs>
2: Where are you going to be?
5: You know the antique dealer you buried, a Stanley Carmichael. I'm just taking over his premises.
2: Just across the square. That's right,
5: uh, opposite you. Actually, we'll probably see a lot of each other. Compare notes, swap stories, down the pub. <laughs> Mine's a light ale, by the way. <laughs> <coughs> oh, uh, did someone die in here? <laughs> Goodbye, Chapman. Oh sure. Uh, well, glad to meet you, Regard. Antigone. Chapman. Georgie.
2: See you later. That's enough.
5: Okay. Enjoy yourselves. Oh, the sun's come out.
4: Well, if he thinks I'm going to buy him a light ale, he's very much mistaken.
2: Oh, shut up, Roger. This is actually very serious. He seemed fine. No, he didn't, Georgie. Coming over here, waving his credentials in our faces, giving us feedback. My God. I thought you liked him. Liked him? Liked him? Yeah. You were talking about fluids and everything. That's professional chit-chat, for God's sake. Do you think I like gorgeous, handsome men, do you? Uh, Exactly. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. I can't think
4: of a scenario where I would buy someone a light ale.
2: Rudyard, focus. He is serious competition.
4: Him? Competition? Are you listening to the man?
2: No, she wasn't. She was gazing into his eyes. Georgina, go and make some tea. We haven't got a kettle. Buy one. Fine. Rajad, we're finished. I can go take a cyanide capsule. We're not finished. We're an established
4: firm, going back centuries. Nobody round here is going to book a funeral with a complete stranger.
2: <gasps> Rajad, look at his shop. What is it? He's already changed the sign. Chapman's, just like he said.
4: Yeah, I'll admit he's working quickly.
2: That does it. You've got to see the mayor. Tell him this village isn't big enough for two funeral homes. That's not a bad
4: idea, actually. I'll see him now.
1: Rudyard scuttled across the village square and up the steps leading into Piffling Hall. He was shown into the office of the Right Honourable Mayor Desmond Desmond, a man who felt that the most wonderful words in the English language were, I'm sure it's going to be fine.
2: Mr Rudyard, fun to see
1: you, sir. Oh, thank you, Marjorie.
2: Uh, Your Worship, I
4: really am most desperately sorry to... uh
6: Where are you? Down here, Rudyard. Under the desk. Why? Oh, just sitting here, you know, doing a bit of um, thinking. Big world out there. Yes, I came to ask you... Rudyard, do you know what the difference is between a village and a town? Um... Well, the
4: town has a greater area. A yes.
6: Higher population. Mm-hmm. More amenities. Ah, amenities, I yes. And there. Yes, all oh, grand. Well, exactly, yes. I, I actually came to we see have to you about. We do something with our lives, haven't we, Rudyard? Don't you think? Yes. I look at my seal of office sometimes, and all oh, my envelopes. And I read my name, and have I done enough, I ask myself. Am I even right honourable? Because I don't feel it. Well, to call yourself right honourable,
4: you have to be a judge or a privy councillor.
6: Really? I've got to change all my stationery now. You see, this is just the sort of thing I'm talking about. What have I earned? What have I achieved? God knows we have to try and justify ourselves somehow.
4: I don't like the man across the
6: road from me. Exactly. And then what with my sister passing the bucket last week? Oh, top drawer send-off you chaps gave her, by the way. Oh, thank you. Pity it rained. Yes, well... Can't help that. No. Or the ground subsidence. Still, we all laughed, seeing her flopping about like that. Anyway... Do you know what I have decided to do, Rudyard? I am going to turn this village into a town. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, things must expand, mustn't they? Probably. Do, do you think so? <laughs> Good. She used to say terrible things to me, my sister. I've got a problem, actually. Have you?
4: Well, can I help? Because I'd really like to be useful. Well, I think you can be. You see, you worship, there's this man. He's not worth it, Rapid. Yes. What? No, I mean, this man is opening a new funeral home, directly across the road from mine. Mm, is that a problem? We can't have two funeral homes, can we? Can we? Why not? Well, it would be ridiculous. Oh, I don't want to look ridiculous. Exactly. We've got two funeral homes, why not? Two fire stations, two hospitals, two mayors. <gasps> two
2: mayors? Could it
6: really get that far? I'd hate to speculate. Help me up, would you?
0: Oh.
6: Yeah. Oh. Yes. I think we had better stab this in the bud immediately. Thank you, Rudyard.
4: Thank you, Your Worship.
6: Get me out of the office anyway.
4: (laughs) Out from under the desk.
6: We won't talk about that. Marjorie, cancel my appointments
1: for today.
2: There aren't any.
1: Thank you. Off we go, Rudyard. Upon arriving at Chapman's, Rudyard and the... Until recently, Right Honourable Mayor Desmond Desmond discovered that the place was about ready to open. And it wasn't yet even midday. Rudyard braced himself for a sinister journey into the unknown.
6: Wasn't this place an antique shop a few hours ago? I
4: don't understand. Does he manage to do all
6: this? Bit flash, isn't it? All these happy colours, not a patch on your setup. Look, not a speck of dust anywhere. I mean... He arrived this morning. Must <laughs> to be said, though, these sofas are very comfy. <laughs> Is that a coffee machine?
4: Yes.
5: Does your place
6: have one of those?
4: We bought
5: a kettle half an hour ago.
4: Oh.
5: Hi. Sorry to keep you waiting. As you can imagine, it's all go here.
4: Is that a lift?
5: Mr. Mayor, it's a pleasure to meet you. Eric Chapman. There's yeah. some chocolate truffles in the bowl there. Help yourself. Ooh, 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 lovely. Would you like the tour? I'd love to show you around. It's still not quite finished. Perhaps another time, Mr. Chapman.
6: You've got a lift. Now, um, I don't know quite how to say this, but... I'm. Um, how
5: to say what, Mr. Mayor?
6: Well, it is very naughty of you to have done all this,
5: isn't it? Is it? Without permission, I mean. You gave me permission. Did I? I mean, before I came here, I was calling back and forth with your people and everything got sorted and, uh, where are we? Here we are. Look, there's your signature. Yes. The smiley
6: face in the O there, it's definitely mine. You must understand, I don't always read everything I am given. I am usually kept very busy. I'm sure. Don't worry about it. What do you think, Rudyard? It's a really
4: nice lift.
6: Oh, thanks, Rudyard. Yes, well, even with all this, I mean, I am the mayor, aren't I? And I have the perfect right to change my mind. Oh, do you not want me here? No, 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 no. it's not that. But, uh, you see, it's just that, well, uh, Rudyard... Sorry? Yes, uh,
4: now look here. Yes, we've already got a funeral home.
6: Exactly! We've already got one. And with the best will in the world, we can't have two funeral homes, can we? Mm. Why? Because well then you see, we'd apparently have to have two hospitals, you see? That's a great idea. Is it? Oh, well good. I'll get on to that. Oh, brilliant. But no, nevertheless,
5: a village just can't sustain two funeral homes, can it? You could be right there. Could I? Told you so. But you know what could sustain two funeral homes? No. A town. You say? No, no. Now, don't no. get me wrong. This is a great village, but I think it's going to be an even greater town. And I want to help you do that in the only way I can. With a funeral home. Can I ask a question? Go for it. If we had two funeral homes,
6: would we need two mayors as well?
5: No. That's ridiculous. Oh. Excellent.
6: In that case, I hereby pronounce this funeral home open. What?
5: What are they doing there? We're taking advance orders. It's just a service we provide.
6: Well, I won't take up any more of your time, Mr. Chapman. Please,
5: Mr. Mayor, it's Eric. Ah, best of luck, Eric.
6: (laughs) If you're ever at a loose end, do pop by the hall.
5: Sometimes... We have movie nights. Oh, remember that. And if you need our services, it's on the house. Oh, tremendous. Looking
6: forward to no, it no, now. No, no,
5: hang on. We
6: Glad need... to have you here, eh?
5: Mr Mayor. Oh, no, no, no. Call me Desmond. TTFN. I'll catch you later, Desmond. Shall I leave the doors open? Oh, if you would. Rudyard, I'm sorry I can't stay in. Uh, can I get you anything? Oh. I, I know what. Make yourself a coffee. Ooh. I better see to that queue. Uh, enjoy yourself. Don't forget the truffles. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, uh, afternoon now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, I'm delighted to say, welcome to Chapman's. And remember, we put the fun in funerals.
1: <clears throat> Chapman. After a coffee and a couple of truffles. Rudyard stormed out, seething with resentment. He kicked a small dog and got bitten by its owner. Having got back to fun funerals, Rudyard sat down a chair by the window and stared out across the road, muttering out loud to his only real friend in the world. It's a funeral home. Who the hell do they think they are,
4: eh? Exactly. I give him a week. All right, maybe two. Uh, he might have gold blend, and lounge music, but you can't put a glass on the mechanics. Get the body and the coffin and the ground on time. That's what it's
2: about.
4: i bet his corpses don't smell of cinnamon. Yeah. We'll see who runs this village.
2: Rudyard, you're talking to that mouse again, aren't you?
4: Her name is Madeline.
2: It's not normal.
4: Antigone, you spend 23 hours a day in a mortuary. Don't tell me what's normal. Off you go, Madeline. We'll continue this later.
2: haven't moved all afternoon.
4: I don't need to move. I'm plotting.
2: Where's Georgie?
4: Stay off. No work. Plotting.
2: Roger, for the first time in our lives we've actually got competition, which means we could really do with having some friends. So could you get out there and make some? I'll do it tomorrow. Have you at least gone round to check up on Mr. Askey? Huh? Who? Mr. Askey, the man we've been waiting to die for six weeks. Because so help me, I need to embalm somebody and it could quite easily be you. Look, Mr.
4: Askey's immortal. He'll never die. So what's the point in talking about it? Now look here. Georgie? What? Right, we will see you there. Mr. Askey's dead. Is he? Yes. Oh my God, Mr. Askey's dead. How? Heart attack half an hour ago. It's all around the village. I'm taking the hour...
2: I'm so happy. It took him long enough. Oh, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. Rudyard! He's he's oh. Stop being happy and get over there now.
4: Sorry, yes. Get over there. I'm gone. Rudyard is back in the game. <laughs> Rudyard is going to get wet. Have the mortuary ready!
2: And Rudyard... Don't cock it up.
1: Before you judge Rudyard too harshly at his delight at an old man's demise... I should tell you that Mr Askey was Rudyard's old P.E. teacher at school, so his delight is almost entirely justified. Rudyard met Georgie at Mr Askey's Bijou residence at 5.45.
2: OK, OK. Uh,
1: Georgie.
4: Sir? Say it again for me, won't you? Say it again. All right, Mr Askey's
2: dead, but listen, I've got to tell you... Ah,
4: yeah, in the son, whatever that means...
2: Yeah, I want to God, say I've
4: been looking forward to putting him in the ground. Can't mock me for losing the 200-metre dash now, can you, Mr Askey? Before you
2: get excited, right.
4: and... Yes, got to straighten up. Yes. Think grave. How do I look? Miserable. Great. Let's go. But,
2: sir... Could we please have some quiet out here?
1: Oh... It's you, Mr. Fun.
4: Afternoon, nurse. May I take this opportunity to convey my most profound condolences?
1: Thank you, Mr. Fun.
4: Sure, my apprentice Miss Crusoe here has already carried out our preliminary duty, so I think in the interest of efficiency we should let the dog see the rabbit, if you'll take me through.
1: Well, this is actually rather embarrassing.
4: Oh, please don't say it's a false alarm.
1: In a sense, yes. Oh, but... Georgie? You said he was dead. He is dead. But,
4: nurse, one of us in this corridor is deeply confused and I'm beginning to think it might be you. No. I knew
5: it. She's mad. Grab her, Georgie. I'm not mad. That's what a mad person would say. Georgie! Let's do this. Rodeyard, great to see you. Chapman! Busy afternoon, eh? Hello, Georgie. Hey, Eric. Stop flirting. Nurse, I demand this man be told to vacate this bijou residence immediately. Look, this is my bad and I've really got to apologise for this one, but...
1: Mr Askey requested it. He what? With his final words, he said he couldn't bear to get buried by such a feeble little weed as Rudyard Fun.
5: Interesting, man. He wanted to see my gold medals in the 200-metre dash. <laughs> Got to say, I wasn't expecting business to take off quite so quickly. You're
2: doing a most proper job, Mr Chapman. Well,
5: thank you, nurse. Uh, I think we'll collect him first thing tomorrow. Anyway, must run. Good to see you, Rudyard. Georgie. Enjoy yourselves.
1: Ah. Oh. What a charming man. I hear he's still a bachelor. So am I. Yes, well,
2: hardly surprising, is it? Ah, well. Can't win them all, eh, sir? Sir, are you all right? I am so... Six
4: o'clock. Six o'clock? Six o'clock, the cemetery. Stanley's widow. Stanley Carmichael's widow in the cemetery at six o'clock. Oh, yeah, I forgot about What time that. is it?
2: About five to six, but you'll never get there. Sir! Oh, for God's sake, Rudyard! Come back here, you stupid...
1: Rudyard raced down the cliff, past the trees and through the streets with a speed that would have finally impressed Mr Askey, had he not already been dead. His lungs aching for breath, his limbs trembling with the effort, Rudyard tumbled into the cemetery at exactly one minute past six to discover... It's...
3: it's all... Ah, there you are, Rudyard. Reverend, what's going on? Well, I arrived to oversee the preliminaries on Mrs Carmichael's... Uh, ...transferral to a better world, mm. if such a place exists... ...which I'm not certain about one way or the other... ...and I found that her family and friends had been gathered together already for the funeral. For the funeral? Since the deceased was already here and sensibly dressed... He just got it done out of the way. Young fellow named Eric. Got his own funeral practice, I understand. I'm hearing marvellous things about it. He's got a coffee machine, you know. Chattan. Led them all in a couple of sing songs, actually. Even had my speech prepared for me. Very succinct it was. Breezed through it all in no time. Chattan. Oh, he also found a lake over there. I think we're all going boating in a minute. He owns a boat, you know. <laughs> anyway, I better be getting back. So we're having jelly and ice cream. Bags of fun. Goodbye, Rodiana. Or oh, should I say, uh, enjoy yourself. You see? You see?
6: Well.
5: Hello, Rodiana No. It's... <sighs> oh. It's you.
4: Hmm. Did a fair job, I hear. C- congratulations. Oh, don't think it'll always be like this. They won't hand it to you on a plate, you know. They won't do that. This is very much the exception. A what? What? You can talk, can't you?
5: Well, say something. Rudyard, have a nice evening. What do you?
4: What do you mean? Have a nice evening. What, what did you mean by that remark, Chapman? What if I don't want to have a nice evening? Hey, eh? what if I don't, Chapman? What did you mean, Chapman?
1: Today had been the worst day of Rudyard's life, until tomorrow came along and topped it. I was there to jot it all down from first-hand observation, and a little bit of gossip I picked up later. And, of course, being his only real friend in the world, Rudyard tells me everything. Oh, my name is Madeleine. I'm going to be the first mouse to write a Sunday Times bestseller... And I know for a fact that Rudyard wants to revenge himself on Eric by, well, we'll burn that bridge when we come to it.
2: Bane of Rudyard was written by David K. Barnes and featured Felix Trench as Rudyard, Beth Eyre as Antigone, Tom Crowley as Eric, Kira Baxendale as Georgie, Steve Hodson as the Mayor, Andy Seacomb as Reverend Wavering, Ellie McAlpine as Marjorie, and Belinda Lang as Madeline. With additional voices by Pip Gladwin, Sarah Burton, and Max Tyler. Original music composed by James Whittle. The program was recorded at the Art Space Studios by Tom Gillieran and was directed and produced by Andy Goddard and John Wakefield.
0: That was episode one of Wooden Overcoats, and now, as promised, here is a conversation with two of the minds behind that program head writer David K. Barnes and co producer and director Andy Goddard. Whenever Andy and David talk about someone named John, they're talking about John Wakefield, the other producer and director of the show. All right, here's our conversation. Andy Goddard, David K. Barnes, welcome to Radio Drama Revival.
7: Hello. It is a pleasure, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, as well. it's oh, it's wonderful, lovely. How did the two of you meet? How did the two of us meet? Well,
8: well, the great fixer. That is Felix Trench, I think. He's the lead role in the show um, Rudyard, Rudyard yeah. Fun. Um, and he sort of knows everyone in Fringe Theatre in London. Yes. Um, he's an incredibly gregarious man and seems to have yeah, thrown the line out to everyone that we know, at least. Uh, and I, I met Felix um, at an immersive production of Emma. That was mm. um, set up as a singles night, and I went with my, I went, <laughs> I went with my girlfriend at the time, which is yeah. obviously like a poor call, yeah. um, in terms of going to a singles night thing. Yeah. We kind of re- wrecked the theme, especially as they picked us as the volunteers, yes, and then paired us together again, yes, which was virtuous, of course. But then Felix was there at the end, of course, and I think it was either Bethair or someone else in the company mm. who then went. Oh, you want to do radio drama? This man is a radio producer. Yes,
7: Link, go. I mean, we. we, we oh, should, Beth Eyre was. Yep, she was Antigone in. in, in when I, I mean, I, I think we should state mm-hmm. to the listener at home that Felix Trey, uh, Felix Trench, is very much an eligible bachelor for all yes. those who enjoyed his voice. We like a little bit more of that. Do contact. Felix uh, He's available very, um, <laughs> for weddings and vomits. mitzvahs. Um, I knew him from uh, quite a number. Of, I met him in 2006, actually. He was I went to Edinburgh um, to university and I went to the local theatre company and he was the very first person I met there. Um, I sat in fact, I met him in the in the box office and I just done a workshop for writing. I thought this is a lovely place. and I went out to the, to the place. And I said, I, do you have a phone number? and this says what the short chap Felix is, is that rather than just write down the number on a piece of paper and hand it to me, he decided he created, in the space of ten silent minutes, he created uh, a little matchbook made out of paper and card and wrote down the phone number on it. And I just sat there watching his dexterous hands (laughs) making this in silence for ten minutes. And he just handed it over and gave me a little smile. And I thought, one day, sir, I shall live with you and write you a sitcom. (laughs) And lo and behold... (laughs) Many years later, <laughs> yeah. we've got it going.
8: And so, yeah, Felix and, and David live together. And uh, I'd been working with Felix on a number of uh, various projects. Um, and so he sort of collided me with David yeah. in his, you know, talent Petri dish, as he does. Or living room, so, as we also call it. Or living room, living room yeah. yes. Sorry, I always get yeah. this confused.
0: So my my understanding of how the show began, how the pitch began, is that Felix Trench encounters Tom Crowley on the Golden Jubilee Bridge over the Thames, and somehow there is an interaction on this bridge mm. that generates the, the setup for two competing it, it, funeral home directors.
7: Very, very nearly. I mean, there's the story you have that the two of them meeting. It, it, it's, um, I mean, it's a very, very romantic story, and of course, Tom Crowley and Felix Trench are two deeply romantic men. But um, mm-hmm. I believe it was actually Felix was by himself crossing a bridge. Um, and suddenly came up with the idea halfway across and, and rang up Tom Crowley, who wish, I see. who wished he'd been there on the bridge, of course. As I say, a two deeply romantic men. You are
0: killing the magic.
7: <laughs> and he called up, and, um, and, and they, they called up, uh, came up with the idea and said, Tom, this is really lovely. They had a chat, and then I was, uh, one day I, I, I was sitting around at home in my dressing gown. I'm not in my velvet jacket at that stage, sadly, for this story. And uh, Felix said, why don't you, we've got this idea. Would you like to turn it into a sitcom? And I said, "Yes, I, I'm definitely not in work right now, and I need work." So, and uh, he went off for a shower, um, uh, and came back, and, I, and I'd come up with a pilot. I mean, we <laughs> often do that. I mean, I just, it just he comes up with we You know, we're very open, flat, um, sitting around in dressing gowns, having showers, and all that kind of thing. There I is think. a slight intermediary step that doesn't get said that much to this one,
8: mm. uh, where it was actually uh, Felix and Tom went with me on one of our days that we call "Best Day Ever." Where we go out in my car with a recorder and mm. go and do something in the countryside, and this one was for one of Felix's plays called Radio Man that Tom was directing, yes. which is a Correct. one-man show based by a canal path. So we went off to find a canal path, and we found one under a flight path. So it wasn't that successful a, re- a recording, yes. but on the drive back, they told me about this idea for a kind of Chaplin-style short film thing, yes, um, called Wooden Overcoats about two rural mm-hmm. field directors. Mm. And I kind of sat there, kind of really annoyed, being like, "Oh, I'd much rather make that into a radio drama." And I, <laughs> and I didn't vocalise it at the time. And then it came back to me. I think two months later, going, "We want this to be a radio drama," and all of my dreams came true. And I fell to the ground <laughs> in happiness. Yeah, Andy, how did
0: how did you get into radio
8: drama oh, as a medium? Um, it started kind of at university for me. Um, I was um, I was an aspiring stand up when I arrived <laughs> at university, um, and I did sort of some gigs. Um, and up in Sheffield, like, there's, a, there's a small scene. That's where I went to university, up in Sheffield. Uh, and there's a kind of circuit. And, but it's all very expensive, and only about 10 people see you, and only about three of them like it. Uh, and so I kind of got into making radio sketch comedy for the student radio thing. And I, in my undergrad, I was doing politics and philosophy, and I did approximately none of that for three years. and ended up doing radio instead. And so at the other end of it, I decided to do a master's of it uh, down
0: in London. And that's sort of where I met everyone mm, uh, cool. and how all this sort of got rolling. One of the stated influences of the show is Steptoe and Son, yes. which is better known to Americans as Sanford and Son. Yes, you had your own um,
7: version, yeah.
0: Uh, and I was doing a little Googling mm-hmm. uh, and I found a 1964 episode of Steptoe and Son yes. called The Wooden Overcoat," Indeed. In which Harold brings home a cartload of coffins. Yes,
7: in fact, that was, um, there was no direct, it was only after, because you know, the title of Wooden Overgoats came, the title of Wooden <laughs> came from, we were just sitting around and had a long chat about, you know, what to be called the series. I mean, I just looked up slang terms for like coffins mm-hmm. and funeral terms and Wooden Goats" came up. Um, but when you Google us for a while, one of the first things you found was that episode of Steptoe and Son, which was quite nice to me because as, as you said, Steptoe was a big influence. Right. Um, and for those who haven't seen it, Steptoe and Son, it's the UK version, I think Sanford and Son's very similar. It was about two, uh, I think, fair to say, junk dealers in, in, who lived in London, uh, poverty stricken. Um, and you have a father and a son who hate each other, but owing to circumstances have to live together. And they sort of love each other, but they would never say so. And it's horrendously bleak. <laughs> they have lots of arguments. They don't like being together. And it's and it's uh, a lot of it is about Harold, um, the younger, the the son, and his desperation to get away, to make something of himself in the world, but circumstances always hold him back. And yet, after all this, it is very, very funny. Um, and I was drawn to this from a, quite a young age, and thought it was a very funny, but also very sad. And I really loved how comedy could do both, almost you know, in a heartbeat. And the, and the writers Ray Goldton and Alan Simpson were absolute geniuses. Um, still alive uh, as of speaking to you today. Um, and one of their earliest, well, their earliest that that is very famous was um, radio sitcom called Hancock's Half Hour, which is one of the earliest British sitcoms um, ever made, and a huge influence on me for writing Wooden Overcoats.
0: So, David, there's this article that you wrote about yeah. how to write a sitcom, yes. seven, seven Steps to yeah. Write a Sitcom, that's up on Medium right now, yeah. and I will link to that when the episode comes out, but I wanted to talk to you, without giving too much away about exactly, yeah. how the how season one of Wooden Overcoats develops. Hmm. Can can we talk about your, your theory of limited character development? Why do you think development is important, but how there's a there's a point that you shouldn't breach?
7: Yes, certainly. I I, I think um when it comes to sitcoms, it's usually been sort of a traditional view that you know you have your situation, you have your characters in it, and the challenge is to come up with as many variations upon that as you can to fill up a number of episodes. Perhaps somewhat easier in the UK than the US because our seasons are usually six to eight episodes, and of course America quite often you're looking at twenty twenty episodes quite quite a lot. But um, to find those variations. But of course, if those characters end up developing so much that they then think, you know, it's saying Steptoe and Son, for instance, if if the son goes, you know what, I am going to branch out and then leaves, your sitcoms ended. Right. Um, and so it's very important that your characters can't develop so much that they then just leave or change so much that it breaks the series. But of course. Um, it's very satisfying to see people develop and grow. If people don't change, you get a bit, you get a bit bored. Um, and so it's always interesting to try and find that bit in the middle, to try and develop characters, so that they come up with new characteristics and they learn from mistakes and they change a little bit, um, so that we, we're always with them. Um, we're always interested in how they're going to change. But we can't push them too far. And I think that's one of the, the challenges of modern sitcom.
0: And I was wondering about... Eric Chapman, mm. because as we learn, or as is hinted at throughout the series, uh, Eric Chapman has a dark past, yes. some kind of mysterious secret yes. that he is loath to convey. <laughs> um, and I was wondering if you could tell me whether or not Eric Chapman is an assumed name, oh. because he's so bland yes. and so perfect yeah. that that, of course, he would just choose. Yes, my name is Eric. Chapman, yes. I am a human being. I am yeah. perfectly normal and ordinary.
7: <laughs> that would be a wonderful twist, <laughs> which uh, I mean, w- which David has just written down secretly under the table. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's it. I mean, I think for me, I, I came up with the name Eric just because I re- i think it's just a, it's a reassuring name, Eric. You know, mm-hmm. you I trust somebody called Eric. And then um, my, my flatmate came up, well oh, Chapman, that's really happy and lovely. And went, mm-hmm. Dad, thank you, I will steal that,
8: even though it's the name of loads of murderers. Because, because I, I thought it might have been because he killed John yeah. Lennon, and he just wanted to implant the idea that that's he might it. be yeah. a killer. Yeah, yeah. That, that's his backstory.
7: Eric Chapman's father is the person who killed John Lennon. I don't think we yeah. can run with that. That's far too bleak for this. Even that's, this. That series. is too
0: bleak, even for this. Yes. Yeah. So I, I understand you. 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 You're involved with you know fringe mm. festival actors, and so I, I, I understand where you picked up a lot of people of a similar age cohort to you. Mm. But how did you pick up? you know, Belinda Lang and Andy Seacomb and um, Steve, I'm blanking on his Steve last name. Hossons.
8: Steve
0: yes. Hudson, yeah. Um, yeah. How did, how did you pick up those actors? stunts really. I mean, like,
8: essentially, we, we went quite... Um, we went aspirational in our casting. We sort of... Um, we spent a long time deliberating over who'd be good for what part and whatever, and then we sort of went, OK, who can we get that we know um, to do these parts? I mean, Belinda Lang... Obviously, wonderful actress. Mm. She's in two point four children and all sorts of things. And basically, I a couple of months before we started production had been doing a little bit on a show called Citizen Khan, which is a British mm-hmm. sitcom. Mm. Um, and she was guest starring in that episode. And it was there was quite a long lull in the day yes. where the actors were basically sitting around while there were some rewrites happening. Um, <laughs> and it happens all the time on British yep. sitcoms. It's nothing. Uh, particularly extraordinary, and I ended up just sitting down and chatting to Belinda Lang because she's just, you know, such a wonderful motherly figure in a in a, in any environment. And basically, I ended up steering the conversation to, oh, I do radio drama, and uh, essentially, her daughter did the same masters course as me, and she'd done a ah. lot of things for. F- Free uh, for goldsmiths mm. over the time. <laughs> uh, and so uh, when it came around, so who can we get for this? And I was like, I can get
7: Belinda Lang. Be-
8: we can get Belinda I mean, Lang to was, be in this. Because I only met
7: most of these people, I only met them sort of briefly, usually like once ago with the script. I remember when we met Belinda, she um, was, the, uh, originally we were just going to get her to do the narration. And um, so we, we came up with cut down versions of the script with just the narration bits. And she said, where are the, what about the mouse squeaking? I went, oh, well, we thought we'd probably get, Someone else, and you know, and then she suddenly said, "Oh, but that's that's a vital part." And she was uh, she was obsessed about wanting to do the mouse squeaking of about quarter of an hour at the end of the of the recording. I remember just sitting there with Belinda Lang doing lots of mouse squeaks, just over and over again into a microphone, thinking, "Good heavens, have we managed to get make this happen?" Yeah.
0: Have you Have you conceived of any uh, any plans for season two? And if so, what can you reveal? Oh, what can I reveal?
7: Well, oh. certainly, yes. We, we've <laughs> said, I, it's, at the moment it's because um, season two we certainly uh, announced a desire to do it a while ago. Mm. Um, so, and at the moment it's something which we're still looking into um, how much we can, and I think we, you know we, we're still having chats on that. But at the moment I am, I am sort of in in anticipation, shoring up ideas and speaking to other writers, and I think we will hopefully be expanding the writing pool. In fact, have more writers involved. Um, there are a few, of course. There are a few. Basically, there are there are. The characters as they develop during season one, and I won't spoil so much right now, so people can get. But um, they reach they, they reach a certain point. The characters are in a different sort of um, attitude to each other by the end of season one as they are at the beginning. And we're going to carry that on. It's very much a series that every episode is a self-contained story. But if you listen to them in order, you really will get a lot more out of them in terms of the characters and how they're changing. And um, extras of running stories. We're going to push some of those. Um, we do have little storylines, um, extras, sort of plots. Um, most of them, annoyingly, are in reaction to events during the end of season one. So I can't mention them here. But um, uh, yes, no, we, we've um, all the characters that people like in season one will be hopefully returning. We've um, got. Uh, no, I really want to answer more of that, but it, it all spoils different plots for. I'm wondering: will, one. There
0: be, will there be new characters? They're,
7: yes, yes, yeah. We'll have it'll be because um, one thing. It, we enjoy doing season one was just what we did with the writers as I said to them at the very very beginning they had a, the episode one script and that's all they really had and we had a big chat about what we want to do and then they went off to come up with ideas and characters and I said if you come up with characters throw them in you know at this stage I, I have no real rules on this island and what's on there and the bound just throw whatever you like into it and you know it will just stick like a big sort of katamari just throw it in there it will stick together <laughs> um And it will be the case in the second series as well. Characters we'll we'll bring back um, if we can. Certainly the mayor and the reverend, we've got lots of lovely things in store for them because the actors are so wonderful. And Mm. there's a character who comes in toward the end of the season who is, I can't say this, it's just a nice... I think is uh, uh, a, a sweet shop owner mm. slash policewoman. She's the chief of mm-hmm. the police as well as a sweet shop owner. She's a lovely character. She shows up in it around about episode six, and we'll hopefully be bringing her back as well because she's a wonderful character and she you know, she sparks off very nicely with the others. Um, but we will be creating new characters, um, yeah, and we'll be developing the ones we've already got. I think yes,
0: yes. So for season one, David, you had you ran a. Five-person writing, yeah. Correct. Yeah. How did you, what did that process look like? How did you coordinate with the four other writers?
7: What we did was um, I wanted to give the writers um, as much room as possible to create what they wanted. I didn't want to be breathing down their shoulders, say, you can't do that. Um, as I say, at the beginning, they had a pilot script, which we made just to episode one, and we had a big meeting. And we just threw ideas around of how the characters could change and different plot lines. And they went away. And... They'd come up with their ideas, Um, they'd send them to me and we'd have a chat about them. They'd go away, do a first draft over a few months, send it back. I'd look at it and it was just a, a series of they would give me what work they had and I'd give them feedback. And after a while it got to a point where I would then say, right, I'm going to edit all these scripts. I've got eight scripts here at this stage, four of them are mine and we've got all the others. And I would then just go through them all. Um, typically what I do is I go through a whole series of scripts reading one character's dialogue so I'll sit there pretending to be Kira Baxendale for two hours and just doing all of her lines in a row and then thinking right th- this writer has made this character unbelievably angry for reasons I don't know I'm going to have to change that and just knock it down in line with everything else it was very much that I-, I would allow the writers to do whatever they wanted and then change bits later send them back make sure they were happy That's sort all. Of
0: Do you have a do this to either of you? Do you have a favorite kind of joke, either just generally or what you used in wooden overcoats? Uh, I'm a character gag man myself. Mm, Yeah. Um. I like my favorite kinds of
8: jokes are ones where you, if if you're trying to explain a sitcom to somebody who hasn't seen it, it's the joke that you loved most in that show, but you cannot possibly explain it to that person because it's entirely Mm -hmm. about. The journey that that character's gone on, yeah. and then it's made you belly laugh. That's yes. that for me is the perfect sitcom joke that yeah. you can't achieve outside of that medium.
7: Yeah, I, over, I do quite like sort of very quick humor, sort of back and forth. Um, but I always like it to be stuff that you can imagine them say. People stuff that you can imagine people saying. I, I like it when it doesn't sound too written. It's just what we would say, but a bit brushed up. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my favorite scene from the first episode when I was writing, even when I was writing, it is. The, is the, probably the, the, the mayor scene, when, when he goes into the mayor's office and he's just sitting there and saying, you know, saying, are you OK? Down there goes, oh, yes, no, I'm, I'm perfectly fine, just sitting here looking out the window. Big world out there, which Steve does beautifully. And it, just, it was a line I remember in the first <laughs> reading. People sort of paused and then thought, no, that is very funny, and then started laughing because it just gave you so much about this character in one line. that It was this sort of slightly paranoid, slightly mad, slightly confused, rather sad, wanting a helping hand. So I wanted
0: to talk to you about the
7: podcast as mm. a live show
0: because you have since performed some elements of Wooden Overcoats live, yes. mm. even though originally you did not want to uh, record it live.
8: Mm. Yeah. John and I read the scripts for the first episode and both of us independently went, this, this isn't a stage thing. Because it's too... There's too much... I don't want to be derogatory to live sitcom because it's its own discipline and... Um, so we, you, you were talking to before about gag density um, the really important thing with a live sitcom is that the gag density is incredibly consistent so you keep that rolling laughter going mm. and it's very much you plan it like you would a from the ground up funny theatre show and it has to be like that where everything in it is funny and leads on to the next thing which is also funny to keep the audience engaged in that kind of rolling laughter this script has more emotional depth than something like that because the gag density is very hard to align with the kind of character development that they wanted mm. to do, the writers, with with this show. And so when it came to putting together um, the uh, how we were going to do it, uh, a lot of it was like, I don't... I, the other reason I don't want there to be an audience there is because if you want to connect to these characters, you don't want to have that extra layer of alienation that a laugh track gives you. It's about creating a mm-hmm. world, wasn't it? Yeah, you, we wanted to immerse everyone in this very rich and complex world which is really weird and different from the one you occupy. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in Piffling there are no cars apart from the one Lamborghini that was yes. written into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's no kind of background street noise or anything, and so the world sounds different to the one that you'll go outside into. There are no planes overhead. There's, uh, and so you have to build this world through sound design mm-hmm. um, for people to be immersed into, and if you then put that in the context of an audience, yeah. then you'll, you lose a lot of
7: that. I think the scene at the end of um, episode one where... You know, where the people are having a lovely time at a funeral and then Rudyard's by himself and then Eric appears and then sort of walks off Yeah. and you have like the, the sound of people having a nice time and you have like the the weather atmosphere and then you know Rudyard's sitting there yelling by himself would be so much less rich if it were done yes. uh, live you'd have to rewrite indeed when we did it live we did rewrite that bit to make mm. it a bit faster because it's okay. so nicely it's so beautifully pasted for the direction of the acting and, and the production value for the podcast when we did the live version I sped it up a bit because you thought, well, you know, we do need, to, as as Andy said, you need a higher, you need to sort of keep things moving rather more. So you can't dwell on those, and you have to sort of find the comic moments to pull those out a bit more. Yeah, and we want to. Yeah, you you
0: did the recording four. process over four marathon days, right? Yeah, yeah. Is what <laughs>
8: That was a big one.
0: Um, yeah, I imagine. So that that was, again,
8: quite a boring, you know, run-of-the-mill reason, which mm. was money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Renting a studio for four days when you are uh, an unknown company without funding or anything like that means that, you. I mean, that was about as cheap as we could possibly do it without sacrificing sound quality. We wanted a really, really professional-sounding product because otherwise there's no point in having all of these writers and this cast involved. So we wanted the best studio we could find for as cheap a price, and so it ended up meaning that we just had less time to record it. Yeah. Um, but it we I wouldn't have asked for more time at the end of it because no. it, it created an amazing atmosphere where there was sort of continuity with the main actors particularly where they were very kind of immersed in their roles over the yes. the yeah. period. And especially with the more frenetic scenes that work later, the kind mm. of creeping madness that working that hard for that period of time gives you...
7: Yeah, the characters do get a bit more... Especially Rajar gets so wound up as the series goes on. He's on the point of mania. That was very much mirrored by Felix, having to do all those maniac scenes four yeah. days on the trot. By the end, he was, just, he was just mad by the, by the fourth day, and it's in there. It's in the performance.
8: I felt a bit like Hitchcock making, doing so, making someone do 100 takes. Yeah. Just yeah, yes, the, <laughs> throwing birds at them. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Of of course I'm not. I'm just a man with not
7: enough money to pay people yeah. properly and give them enough time to do it. But, uh, it, but it worked out. So of course, there's there is there's the weird <laughs> sort of paradox that every scene that is meant to be in a huge outdoor space ends up having to be done in a tiny, tiny, boiling hot room. a It but was. The dead and, room. And, and so yeah. you've got like, you know, oh, it's it's an outdoor, you know, so all the scenes which are in an office are two people talking, you've got bags of room. And then suddenly, well, we're outside in a funeral. We've got nine actors. Let's stick them in a space suitable for maybe one. And then close the door on them and keep them there for a long, long time. I mean that that drives hysteria up, which is useful because then we use that.
0: Andy, you wrote you wrote an episode you sorry, you wrote an article on Medium also about yep. about producing the mm. audio drama. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk very briefly about how you had a physical series of sets within this. Um, okay. So, so this
8: is this is a, a idea pretty much lifted from the way that the BBC does radio drama, um, where they literally use six different studios that are different sizes and different kind of densities of wall, and they can you can lift up panels in the floor and have different things to walk on, and all that kind of thing, and it's amazing, and it costs so much money to use. <laughs> uh, and so I wanted to, well, John and I wanted to recreate that kind of thing because there is a real significant difference in the audio you get back when you simulate a room. Uh, than when you basically have it, um, and so as much as a dead room is really handy for if you just need to create a space which there's no way you can make the set for, um, and for outdoor scenes, it wouldn't be as there wouldn't be as much of a signature sound to the way fun funeral sounds as opposed to the rest of it if you didn't have that set built there, and so what we did on the day, uh, well it was the Sunday before we started recording because the engineer let us in the evening before, um, we went down and set up these audio screen, well, these sound screens, uh, which were mostly kind of wo- either wooden glass or um, baffles, which are kind of cushioned um, surfaces. Um, like if you, you know, like pin boards that you have in school where you put up notices, they're a bit like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they kind of absorb sound uh, and uh, stop, the, stop the reverberations. Uh, whereas the wooden reflector surfaces, they, they, it bounces off them. Um, so if you have like a dusty old wooden room, you're going to need a lot of hard surfaces to make it sound like that. Uh, and so Fun Funerals is essentially just a load of wood and glass um, and as many hard things as we could find put into one space um, with a baffle behind the microphones just to make sure it didn't sound like a
7: cape. And of course the actors could then walk around. Yeah. You sort of actually directed it almost like theatre.
8: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to do location recording um, when I don't have a budget for things and so I kind of treat the the microphones like a camera so to speak mm-hmm. uh, and so I do the blocking so it, it comes out in the stereo spectrum where people are in the space and so um, in fun funerals I was getting going so you know that bit where you go over to the table and you pick up the phone yeah you're walking from here
0: to here and it's going to sound like that and, that, and you're going to move around the space. So I wanted to talk about the the position that Wooden overcoats occupies in the podcast space mm. right now mm. because first of all there aren't a ton of podcast sitcoms and there aren't a ton of um, uh, of independent audio fiction podcasts coming mm. out of the UK right now. Mm. Like in, in mm. the United States, yeah. this isn't this isn't so noteworthy because we haven't had publicly commissioned mm. uh, audio theater made in this country since maybe 1981. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. Uh, How many other people, how many other companies do you know are going independent and making their own independently produced and financed radio dramas like you are? Two or three. Uh, It's like Us,
8: Man by Cow, which is sort of almost more of a sketch type thing. Mm. Uh, Strangers in Space, which is two um, really famous children presenters from the 90s Mm. uh, making a sitcom with an old Doctor Who companion. Yes. Uh, And then I guess there's the Beef and Dairy Network, Mm -hmm. which is uh, one guy. He's amazing, by the way. Um, yeah, look at the the Beef and Dairy Network; it's a fantastic comedy podcast. But we sort of approach it from um, the same sort of angle as the kind of establishment BBC methods, like doing them in big studio things with mm-hmm. casts and, you know, um, and. Certainly, someone like Strangers in Space, they're looking at funding as they go, um, and so they spread it out over a very long period of time. It takes a long time for them to come out with a new episode because they need to secure the money, whereas we just went, we're going to make it all and then worry about that later because we're mad
7: people. Hmm. A lot of podcasts um, are sort of done on a way that you can sort of make an episode every, uh, if you want, every week or sometimes every month, whereas Overco's—it it took for season one it took six months to write the scripts – during that time, of course, there's lots of casting and lots of production and things happening. But then you have like the recording over four days, then a month or so of putting it all together. Um, sometimes, as the episodes were still being sort of re- released, you know, that it's a long production time. Yeah, yeah. But then you, it, that also gives you the the depth of quality of the world. And you know, and very detailed hopefully. stuff, hopefully. <laughs> yes, it's what we, well, certainly what we're attempting, but yeah, know. yeah. Um, and we, we're going for that
8: kind of high ticket value thing that you'd expect. Uh, the thing that we're most proud of when it with the reviews, certainly as producers, me and John, is when you get things back saying, like, you know, it's as good, if not better quality, than the thing
0: you tend to get on radio for. But can we know. talk about the commissioning process a little bit because I, I know very little about it, sure? Uh, and I think people outside the UK also are not especially familiar with what it takes to get something commissioned by the BBC. I mean, many people mm.
8: in the UK struggle with that very same thing as well. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a very um, single-channel kind of thing. Um, certainly for radio, there is a comedy commissioner, there's a drama commissioner, um, and there's a kind of factual content commissioner. They have other people working for them, but really <laughs> the buck stops with those three-odd people. So if you want to make a Radio 4 comedy, you have to pitch something to that person at the time of year that they say that they want it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we have a... um, For comedy, which is one I know best, I don't really know the drama one very well, you have a spring and an autumn commissioning round. So twice a year you get to come with your ideas and pitch them, um, usually on spec rather than with a script because they'll like to be involved in the writing process. Um, And then... There's three rounds after that. You sort of go through a, are we even vaguely interested in this round? And then you have a, we are interested in this. Where do you want to go with it? Let's develop it a bit round. And mm-hmm. then you have a, are we going to make it or not round? Uh, and so along that process, there's a lot of ways that it can go wrong. and get dropped and it's all very complicated. And mm-hmm. there's an enormous amount of talent going for not actually that, that many slots are available. Uh, and mm-hmm. the BBC as is there one um, tends to prioritize these, you know, the bigger establishment comics because there's a kind of conventional wisdom that this kind of medium is dying out a bit, and so you need to have those big names in there to keep yeah. it going.
0: What is the most unexpected um, sound effect that you, or what's the most un, uh, unexpected material that you use to generate a sound effect during the course of your career as a producer, or during career as a producer? I'd say my
8: favorite one that I've ever done that I can probably send to you. Um was it was a really, really weird sketch in a sketch show that I was doing up in Sheffield where the premise was there's a couple driving in a car, um and one goes to the other one oh, oh it's just coming up on the left here, hang on. They wind down the window and then there's this grinding horrible metal sound. Uh <laughs> for ages. And then it stops and then the the guy goes to the goes to the wife, um, Oh, we should really get the brakes fixed and then she goes what's the point in inheriting an anchor if you're not going to use it <laughs> and for that one um, we basically just dug everything out of the basement that was metal and scraped it along the floor for ages and I think there's about like 20 or 30 different kinds of metal scraping laid on top of each other it's horrible Renders. <laughs> um i try to think of one of the more fun ones from whatever Kids as well there's a we had a lot um uh, we had a moment where there's a, a very heavy involvement of cats and bins uh, later on in the series uh, <laughs> and for that one it was me uh, it was beth Eyre and i kind of knocking about around the back of my apartment with uh with my recorder and her impersonating a cat <laughs> Uh, and then me throwing like old bits of rug into bins, and then kicking them at the same time to try and get the right sound. Yeah. Uh, and we used like a mic, a st- load of mic stands together, yeah. and chucked them into a bush for the sound of a dummy being chucked in there. And I, I
7: forgot that the cat was some cat sound effects, and also Beth and, pretending yeah, to be a cat. It's
8: mixed together because you can't get. <laughs> Like, unless you actually manhandle a cat, you can't make you can't make them max
0: And we, right. don't, we didn't have the, the the budget for an animal wrangler. So wooden overcoats has become more and more popular, right? Like the not not just in the UK, but its 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 reach has expanded worldwide. You know, you're you're distributing throughout anywhere that anyone has internet. Um, um, and now wooden overcoats is starting to be the target of internet fandom. Mm, uh, nice, and yeah. I, I've seen that there are a couple of pieces of fan fiction. Yes. Uh, on uh, an archive of our own and I was wondering, first of all, if you've read them. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. And what what is it? What does it feel like to read fan fiction set in a canon that you yourself have created?
7: It is astonishing. I mean, we don't really say it because we don't really scare people away from doing it because it is lovely. I mean, it does come up and we do, we see it's been done. I love them. I'm so happy. I I really <laughs> like it. I, I've been never been happier. Than
8: I, the God. I I really I really. If any, anyone who really loves Wonder Coast and Rice sizes, is listening, yeah. keep doing them. Yes. They make us so happy. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of them are, are, are odd. Yeah. But that's fine. I mean, they, they have to live in their own universe and do their own things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not, not the writers, I think, when, they, when they create new content for it. But what I've been really
7: uh, in- excited by is how, when you know, people writing fan fiction have readers really drawn upon traits in the series and written stuff, and you think, yeah, I can see those characters say this is just very much at home in what we've been doing. Yeah,
8: there's, there's one where someone's got the voice of Madeline absolutely perfect. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can hear in my head Belinda Lang yes. saying it, and, yeah. and they've written it almost
7: like a chapter from Madeline's memoirs, yeah. and it's, it's brilliant. And I've, that people have done drawings of what they think the characters look oh, like. I love those. That's mm-hmm. really, that's it. Just, it suddenly it pops. And it's it's a slow trickle so far, but it is a wonderful. I'm just so excited to see these characters suddenly develop even more in the mind, because it shows that people really like them. You know, you only write this uh, fan fiction if you really like the characters. You can see more stuff you can do with them. And this, there's, right.
8: one, there's one that's really amazing where they've added a school to uh, Yes, there was a school in it anyway. Yeah. I think that's referenced at some point. I, I don't think there even is actually. Yeah. Oh, maybe it was in a previous draft, yeah, or not yeah. But there, there, at some point. No, 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 because uh, they, when, uh, when Rudyard and Antigone are talking about their childhood, yes. it's mentioned that there is a school there, mm. and they've picked up on that one thing and then made this sort of yeah. the way Piffling classes would work, which kind of makes sense within the universe. Yeah, and, and in that same one, they've also named the street <laughs> that Funerals is on, which we yeah. haven't done. No, uh, and um, added kind of more geographical dimensions, like round the corner from this place was this place, which is like the mayor's yeah. office, and it's like, oh yeah, that is broadly where we thought it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing that you've picked up all this stuff from it. I mean,
7: it has inspired me to. I mean, one thing I'd like to do, we're still looking into if it's uh, going to be possible. I would love to um, make make it possible, do, is for writers around the world to submit. There are some material, short bits of material that they, we could then record with the actors later on. It's still something we're sort of really working out if it's going to be possible. I'm having a tiny heart attack with you saying this uh, yeah. on
8: record. But it's a
7: dream of mine. This is not being running past the production team, but I would really would, if it were possible. It would be my
8: dream always, David, to make your dreams come true. I, I think you can probably say that we'd like to do that at some point. Yeah. That would be great. There's
7: something that, if yeah. it never
8: happens, it's because it was either too expensive yeah.
0: or we didn't have the time. Andy, David, thank you so much for, for appearing on Radio Drama Revival. This was an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you are you welcome you so back much anytime at all. Us. Oh, this has oh, been man, lovely.
7: Yeah. Please yeah. invite us back on shows that we have not even involved with. We'll sit there and talk to you with them.
8: Uh, thanks so much. Uh, it's been it's been lovely being on the show. Uh and hope to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Do
7: some lovely things today.
0: If you're looking for suggestions for lovely things to do, may I suggest the following. Number one, start following Wooden Overcoats on social media. They're at Overcoats Wooden on Twitter. Number two, support their show by going to WoodenOvercoats.com and clicking Help Us Make More. And number three, listen to the following credits, because this episode of Radio Drama Revival is over. Our theme music comes to us courtesy of DJ Stranger Danger, whom you can find on SoundCloud. You can follow us on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, and via GPS. There's an RFID chip that Fred embedded in my thigh, hashtag blessed. If you're so inclined, you can support our show by setting up a sweet monthly donation on the website, radiodramarevival.com. And it put a smile on this old mug. The show this week was produced by Matthew Boudreaux and yours truly, with production assistance and research from Monique Boudreaux and Heather Cohen. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhough. I'm David Reinstrom. Goodbye, and happy listening.